Distoblicans of the World. I'm Raul Guerrero, and I welcome you to the Dystopian Republic. The dusk of October 12, 1981 is where today's story will begin. Teenagers from Colchester flocked to the Fyodor Betancourt Memorial Farm for their town's turn to experience an evening of fun only an elite from Lobotown could make a reality. That young man was slightly older than the kids he's gathered under one roof in suits and dresses that longed for a decade when all was formal and virtuous. His list of attendees was a purpose-based who's who of Colchester's student body and their tolerance of each other regardless of whether their soul was that of a Prus Blue Robin or an Aroxy Cougar. He knew that toleration had its limits, viewing said vulnerabilities as his spots to exploit. None other than Dean Jr., he was that heir, breathing in the ballroom's growing crowd like it liberated him from the newspaper that made him sick. Tonight was a pivotal night for him as it was his first time performing as a headliner and not an undercarder, seeing his months of being an afterthought draw up into a payoff that'll do more than pay. Dean Jr. welcomed the young people of Colchester to his dance, introducing himself and his band as the uniters of all sides. His group made itself distinct with its cougar masks, robin feathered outfits, and a song list that called for a unity that transcended menages. As an event, Dean Jr.'s dance was where storylines would culminate after build-ups that carried over from the previous school year. Chloe looked to celebrate the anniversary of her and Devin's friendship with Audrey and Kitty with dancing, temperance drinks, cute photos, good company, and the chance of having a little grown-up fun with the boys. Their look was side-by-side side with the end result of an exhibit on fabric that was hell-bent on being the talk of Colchester and staying as such for some time to come. Olvina snipped and sewed the fabrics Erasmo measured and calculated. Basilia chose the colors and sketched the designs and Yailin was in charge of evaluating, critiquing, and suggesting. Wrexham, Marty Bell, and Ulrich looked to get back at Palmer, Sullivan, and Cybella for a prank that resulted in a scary brush with death. As for what the so-called joke was, it involved being on the side of the road, taking four or so steps into it, a shove onto the path of a speeding semi-truck and pass by that was fast enough to throw the three back to where they started as if the runover had actually taken place. 
Palmer, Sullivan, and Cybella planned on finishing Wrexham, Marty Bell, and Ulrich off with a prank so severe yet equally simplistic. They told the latter trio that they were in for a much worse experience if they thought the joke on the highway was scary and scarring. Elmiria walked into the ballroom while embracing herself as if she was freezing in only her underwear, despite the definition of modesty being her dress swaying from one group to another nearby. Her gaze evaluated the funky rainbows moving and stepping, learning the moves with eyes that emitted a malice she didn't have. Clement and Isaias took turns cutting rags with Sonsoles, a caring share that was amicable at first, but became more pugnacious as the spiked punch kicked in. Elmiria's gaze put a cliff-hanging end to their triangle and focused the growing tension on her, resulting in the three ganging up on her for being a creep, weirdo, and loser. Sheridan and Willa giddily held hands in anticipation of the dance being their first date as a couple but caught the gang up in progress. Their blood started boiling when Sonsoles told Clement and Isaias to prove their love for her by beating their manhood into Elmiria. Sheridan cringed at himself for letting a girl use her flirtatious charm and sultry neediness to have him pommel a nerdy boy senseless. Willa got the shudders from the terrified looks Elmiria gave when Clement and Isaias clenched her chest and had her in a headlock, remembering the assault two girls perpetrated on her with clubs. A confrontation between attacker and onlooker was seconds from commencing when a four-strong click entered the dance as among the last to arrive. Late, but fashionably so, Stanton, Poppy, Flossie, and Charlie pranced on down in response to Dean's call for all to come, as it was now time to play the reason why he's before them tonight. Willa froze at the united prance due to her desperate hope of never having to see two of its members again running out. Poppy and Charlie were the girls who callously clubbed her and bragged about it even after it resulted in a rush to the emergency room. This also caused Stanton to spot Sheridan and Willa the boy who broke his lights out like glass and girl who enticed him into carrying it out. Dean thanked everyone for their grooves to his ice-breaking numbers, calling those songs the ingredients that start his cure to all bad feelings. His thanks stopped whatever quarrels that were about to break out right in their tracks, uniting their would-be participants under a banner of love for the uniters on stage. Dean asked his audience to hold their oranges high 
if they partied for the people or hoist their blue corns proudly should they lean on the appeal side. He called the rays of fruit and vegetable a uniting force that provided Bromelia the necessary nutrition to optimize its societal health from in the mouth to out the bottom exits. Going back to the reason he mentioned earlier, Dean described his next song as a frolic through a world of coffee and chocolate. He told the audience to snort in the conjoined scent and not let a whiff of it evade their sinuses, assuring them that the reward will be fruitful for them and him. The song Dean and his band played skipped on the most dense clouds into a beat that begged the thinner ones to blind them with their immersion. A brown smoke gradually covered the floor from near the ground up, tucking Devon, Olvina, Marty Bell, Palmer, Sonsoles, Sheridan, Poppy, and all others in the audience into its wonderful mocha as its scent consumed the whole ballroom. Dean told everyone to give into the smell's lure as it'll set them free, salivating with a grin, drunk on pleasure. Neither he, his band, nor those working for them were affected due to the gas masks hiding in the cougar heads they wore. Dean could see that his audience was getting a little drowsy, sounding thoughtfully derisive when he asked them if all was all right. He told the kids not to tell him that they've grown tired so soon, then said that it was no biggie as he had just the slideshow for them to fall asleep too. Projecting pictures of homeless people and their encampments engulfed the eyesights of Dean's audience images that the fog was making them perceive thoroughly. Kids such as Devin and Poppy were being thanked for coming to the dance in the fog and told to let the people they're staring at be all they could think about. Then in one fell swoop, Dean's audience fell into an unconsciousness that got the ball that was his solution rolling. Several hours later, Devin awoke to a sunshiny morning that showed the ballroom in a state of utter clutter with the mocha smell still around but almost gone. Wondering what on earth happened last night, she nudged Chloe until she woke up and caught Kitty doing the same thing to Audria, leading to all four of them sharing in that wonder. Like the mentioned four, it took time for Erasmo, Basilia, Ovin, and Yailin to remember walking into the dance and seeing the uniters of all sides perform. That was when the memory of falling unconscious while perceiving the pictures hit those eight plunging them into a puzzledness that didn't get why the band would play with them like that. Yailin called what the band did to her and her friends not cool, 
prompting Olvin to say that said deed was messed up. Basilia commented that if Dean was willing to exploit kids like her that way, then only God knew what he'd do to children below her on the societal ladder, knowing nothing about the dance's true purpose. In a tour bus with his band, Dean kicked back, had his feet up on a built-in table, and looked out the window. He couldn't wait to get home and spend the 15th of October with Dean Sr., Joyce, Mosley, Turnbull, and Dina, but cringed, imagining his sister and her friends running around the castellette like mice in search of food to eat. Dean Jr. was looking forward to the spectacle that a certain Bromelia will behold on its Independence Day on live TV and radio. Halfway past the 8th hour of October 15th, a nationalistic parade marched down Bromel Square before Twin Rivers of Bromelian flags in its black, white, stripes and single star. Richelieu told viewers who've just tuned in that they're watching Bromelia celebrate its 137th birthday live on Telezoro. She called the celebration an extravaganza the Bolshevist butt-kissing network known as Gaiotel wouldn't even think of broadcasting, calling it antithetical to their aim of appeasing the East no matter what. The forest surrounding Lobotown had no breaks in its ring, but did have some sections that were denser and more enshrouded than others. One place where it was much less compacted and enveloped was the Malio Castellet at Lobotown's south-southeast end. Four floors tall and suburbanly compressed, the home was an onyx black version of the castle in Aldelnion. Letter, gate, stone and all within those qualities. Its modestly sized, yet no less lavish, backyard was the stage for a cookout around the big, charcoal, fire pit grill. Years away from sowing their infamy's first seed, Dina, Windsor, Eileen, Keller, Norwood and Blythe were six little kids playing tag. Dean Sr. kept an eye on the pork chops cooking over the flames while Joyce thoroughly lathered the loin cuts he'll cook next in a cilantro lime marinade. He felt morally exonerated over the fact that he bought the meat from the Norlanuda farm in Rusalka, a den mom and pop operation. Mosley and Turnbull couldn't step away from the radio as the parade sunk them in a world of enchanted castles, sacred animals, and godly people. Their minds were pulled from their engrossed states when Richelieu grudgingly introduced Habsburgo V to listeners, ignoring the standing ovation and chants of his name right after. Mosley and Turnbull's hatreds for the president were identical in result but opposite in detail due to one being learned and the other finding its formation in experience. They knew that if Habsburgo was at the parade, so were those in his administration or part of his personal life. The younger two brothers grew ill envisioning the president breathing in the fanfare with a hubris that believed in its political untouchability. Habsburgo's main aim as president was to right the wrongs of the past like Gabino Sr. did years ago 
but without the sins that came along with those corrections. The breath of fresh air he promised was a factor in his decisive win over Allred Sr. in the 1980 presidential election as the latter was seen as a continuation of an era that ended in disrepute. Steps from the Castellette's barbed wire fence. Dean Jr. drank his elegant glass of white grape juice to a humidly cool wind that quelled the disgust lingering within. Mosley and Turnbull joined him after having heard enough from the radio. Fuming at Richelieu for incognizantly making Habsburgo out to be a saint with angelic wings. Slightly surprised to see his brothers beside him. Dean Jr. asked them how long they'd been where they were. Mosley answered that he and Turnbull have been at his side since the parade became the bad kind of monotonous. Dean told his brothers to never mind that question having them direct their attention to what's down below and beyond the trees. Given where the Malios lived, they could easily see the grassland beyond the forest as well as three neighboring ringed municipalities. The brothers saw smoke rising from a crater two miles away and 40 feet down, bringing them a smell that was horribly burnt and offensively putrid. Dean introduced Mosley and Turnbull to a cultural plague that's slowly but painfully killing their land and must be contained before it spreads further. Neither brother could see that the crater was where a community of over 200 kinda brought a town out of its ghostly state. Known as a Mephriter, the municipality relaxed in its abundances of purple gems and flowers which rested honor in an earth that took its share of the color both had in common. It came to be in 1857 and prospered until it was rooted out in an especially monstrous manner by Gregorio Sr. in 1951. Amephrita remained a ghost town for over 28 years, going far into its journey of gradually becoming one with the earth. Its history with gemstones enticed no one into making it their home as Bromelia's post-communist modernization took away its appeal. Almost all believed that the riches Amephrita once had were now being securely held in a museum that paid tribute to the victims of Gregorio Sr.'s tyranny. This secure hold was the result of one foundation's vow to return the gemstones to their rightful guardians, the townspeople who suffered a fate so cruel, a terribly inadequate yet necessary consolation. But when a group of deployment ditchers ventured into a Mephriter in 1976, it turned out that several hundred gemstones remained unaccounted for. Those guys and gals saw this unearthing as their key to bribe their way out of accountability. Upon the expiring of the Statute of Limitations, the now three ditchers made their community publicly known. They won very few friends, tons of critics, and even some who vowed to do to them what Gregorio Sr. did to Amephrita's original inhabitants. But untouchables like Maya saw the town as a place where she can mingle with people who know what it's like to have society ostracize them for their past. And today, she decided to bring Milburn, 
Merlin, Maxwell, and Monroe with her for the first time to have them experience that acceptance. Even though Rotten Decay bit away much of a mefriter, the majority of its infrastructure remained standing and possibly habitable. The smoke seen by the Malio brothers was really multiple ones that came together originating from a barbecue that involved nine or so charcoal grills, cooking gutted, skinned, and salt and peppered rats and plucked crows. Maya happily watched her son's play hide-and-seek tag in what was a hotel from the porch of the dead general store across the street. But Milburn and his brothers didn't have the building all to themselves as Rebecca, Rochelle, Ridley, and Riley were also playing. The eight shrieked and laughed as if they'd been friends for ages, although the quartets haven't known each other for long and have been on good terms for an even shorter time. Playing tag as pairs, Milburn and Rebecca were one, Merlin and Rochelle was another, Maxwell and Ridley formed the third, and Monroe and Riley composed the last. The once plush hotel made for a playground full of places to run through, hide in, and stumble onto. Maxwell and Ridley were it after being tagged the second Merlin found them embracing in the bathtub of a second floor queen bedroom. Riley breathed out a relieved sigh that thanked goodness for not letting the janitor's closet door she carelessly made creak reveal her, believing that she would have been caught had the sound happened six seconds sooner. Maxwell and Ridley had a count of 100 to do while imagining their seconds of being it climbing the closer they got to that number. Riley front flipped over the bar's main counter and hid behind and under it, snorting a gin bottle to get a high from a smell she's been craving since having the liquor forcibly poured up her nostrils. Merlin silently argued to Rochelle that the girls' bathroom should be their hiding place as it was antithetical to their needs for cleanliness all the time. His promise that they'll clean up afterwards was met with her quietly lashing out Adam for picking such a nasty hole to hide in, asking if he knows that traces of urine, feces, and vomit could be festering there. When Maxwell and Ridley yelled, that here they came, ready or not, Rochelle gulped her revulsion and hid with Merlin in the second stall from the back wall. Rebecca followed Milburn a third of the way down the top floor, lassoed the circle hook used to pull down the ladder to the roof, struggling to unfold its sections without loud creaks or slams. Their climb up was fueled by an urgency that sensed Maxwell and Ridley imminently entering the circle where every move could be heard and pinpointed. As Rebecca and Milburn made their way to the roof, someone in black pants and heavy leather boots stomped on the unincorporated grassland under a march's tune. Maxwell and Ridley waited for the third floor to hum its ambience and nothing else, put on their stethoscopes and pinned their chest pieces on the walls. Listening for heartbeats, their cochlea scanned up, down, 
left, right, and every direction in between, moving their scopes of sound like a searchlight on high alert. Ridley remembered reading books that detailed how meticulous Gregorio Sr.'s killing squads were in wiping out their targets. The stethoscopes she and Maxwell were using was one particularly harrowing aspect of that furrowness. Ridley's ambition of being a historian for the University of the Capitol was blocked by a green linen cotton wall that's been fortified by the half of a blood she and her sisters had in common. While her knowledge of Operation Rootout came from books, Maxwell's understanding of that atrocity centered around what Maya told him and his brothers. His mother called Gregorio's attempt on every life in Olivaldea a devastating betrayal and said that it was an example of the late dictator preying on the innocent and defenseless. Maya discussed how she spent much of the 1950s bringing together the few who escaped or survived the operation's mass murders. Her stories made her out to be a seeker of truth with a hunger to identify every victim and perpetrator by name, and that's where her word choice leaned away from spontaneity and toward caution. Maxwell's thought was interrupted by the crumbling down of a large, severely dry-rotted portion of the wall behind him. He and Ridley hid in back of the part that didn't give way and saw two, six, nine, more and more teens in charcoal gray, non-bodysuit versions of the suits Ferdinand XIV's troops wore when the plague was tearing Bromelia apart. Maxwell didn't like how ghoulish they looked, but his mate stared at the masked faces as if they were reapers who've come to take souls. On the roof, Melbourne and Rebecca made out under the shade of the chimney and tall ledge, then hastily got up after Monroe's slip of his left foot loudly scraped his boot back, making his palms smack the tin smokestack. Maya finished her mint leaf tea as she and others in the late town saw the teens approach like a synchronized mob marching in on its target. This made the ditchers rue the night they arrogantly burned away their guns and bullets, disbelieving how they could be so effing short-sighted. Making matters even worse, they forgot much of their basic training and only had their fists and feet to fight with but had a whole zip code to hide in. Milburn got mad and asked Monroe why he keeps following him and Rebecca as the three noticed the teens closing in on the late town. In recent weeks, the suspicion he had that his brother may have feelings for his partner grew to the point that he contemplated never letting him be alone with her anywhere. Milburn gave Monroe the benefit of the doubt and assumed that he saw Rebecca as a stronger version of himself and Riley. Their attentions weren't on the teens due to their looks at them being fractions of a notch better than glances measured in milliseconds. 
Rebecca recalled having the same issue with Riley when she'd follow her in Melbourne whenever they played any game that involved hiding. But her bond with her sisters did not have the miles-deep roots that kept her partner and his brothers for, making it all but painless for her to threaten harm, or worse, should infidelity occur. While Monroe did nothing with Rebecca, Milburn was caught having Riley in his arms, but that was to warm a horrible nightmare out of existence. The ditchers at the edges of town watched the teen step foot on the base that was its limits, knowing full well that their unscheduled guests had conflict written all over them. When Rebecca saw Milburn and Riley together, she unleashed an angry violent wrath that lowered her sister's opinions of her considerably. However, her mate's brothers liked her no less or pretended to, fearing falling outs that could gravely imperil all their lives. Since the embrace, Rebecca and Riley have limited their interactions to wavings of the hands, head nods, and simple greetings and parting words. Rochelle and Ridley chose to mind their own business out of a fear that the former will commit a harmful or even lethal act on the latter, refusing to be the reasons why two tragedies took place. Dean Jr. casually drank his juice and was in a giddy hum over the teens beginning their assault with a bang he could hear ever so faintly from afar. He couldn't thank Sajonia enough for creating the potion he used on his latest cohort, even if she herself didn't think highly of it, for reasons understandable for a person of her time. Dean told his brothers that the ditchers didn't know a thing about pain if they thought being pariahs defined it. By numbers such as 5 and 11, the ditchers had their chests slashed all the way across, guts stabbed in, mouths fountaining blood, bones broken everywhere, skin ripped up, organs perforated, and hairs yanked off by the teens. Maya ran for shelter in the store's long-abandoned inventory basement and desperately prayed that her boys and their lady friends were okay, maintaining her calm by imagining herself reuniting with them. Dean Jr. requested that his parents let him have some quality time with Mosley and Turnbull without anyone else present. Knowing what he meant by that, Dean Sr. told him to take all the time he needed while Joyce evilly thought about the brown potion she hid in a special lockbox only she could unlock. Dean Jr. knew he could count on his father's money and mother's skills to craft a concoction he was now able to make himself. Milburn, Rebecca, and Monroe shoved their personal S-word aside when seven of the teens threw bladed stars that narrowly missed their faces. Falling to their hands and feet, they crawled to and down the ladder with every hundredth of a mile per hour in their bodies, blades spinning, flying and crash landing all over and around them. So many stars and other bladed throwables came their way that the three took some of them, intending to use them 
to defend themselves and those they loved. Milburn, Rebecca, and Monroe reunited with Maxwell, Ridley, and Riley in the third floor hallway. Then Merlin and Rochelle rushed to them with painful but non-life-threatening wounds. Where those eight were was the innermost part of the hotel, an area with no external walls or an extent of rot like other parts of the building. Merlin and his brothers couldn't wait for Maya to come and be that protector she had always been, telling her not to dare run out of town as that would rip up and squish their hearts like bugs made of paper. Maya began seeing her hiding place as an undignified grave. Sensing the teens getting closer to her location and feeling their murder counts approach the triple digits. Her want to abandon the town equaled that of her belief that she'll die the second she runs outside. Maya clenched her fists light on her back, looked up at the ceiling, and started praying her way to a peace that accepted a fate it believed was inevitable. Then... The nailed in wood that formed the basement's floor began to creak, chip, and fissure away from its edges. Maya felt herself gradually sinking, and before she could even think of getting up, the wood gave way and took her on a plunge that broke her fall 32 times with blocks as big as the slab they hid under but broke through like tissue paper on the slightest touch. After the last break, she fell 40 feet onto a gigantic moss mat that cushioned the impact and left her to spend some time in disbelief and shock. Maya then heard the store she hid in collapse and sensed it plunging to where she landed, scaring her into getting the F up. She jumped off the organic block ran 150 feet forward and tripped in time to watch the building fall on and crush the mat as well as anything nearby. Maya covered her ears to prevent her hearing from being damaged by the collapse's positive decibels. She stared at the rubble piling up from the floor and up into the hole where her fall was repeatedly broken and was relieved to have escaped. That relief became grief when Maya realized that her sons and their friends were likely still in danger, leading her to make the gut-wrenching decision to save herself. She was sure that there was no saving those eight, and so she thought trying to would be pointless, letting her sadness fuel her run to safety. The teens' attack on the late town continued past the sunset and ceased only when the smell of death was so prevalent that it hid whatever whiffs of life that remained. They went their separate ways to escape the authorities they knew would surround the scene of their rampage. Once it had been approximately 24 hours since Dean released his fog on his audience, the teens fell to a deep sleep that lasted half a day. They woke up wondering what they were wearing, why there was blood all over them, and how they ended up miles into the woods. None of the teens remembered committing the massacre on the 15th, but knew they had to ditch their clothes, even if it meant returning to their homes in only their underwear. Taking off their masks, Wrexham, Marty Bell, Ulrich, Elmeria, Sheridan, Willa, 
Isaias, Sonsoles, Clement, Palmer, Sullivan, Cybella, Stanton, Poppy, Flossie, and Charlie were sixteen of the teens revealed. As for Chloe, Devin, Audria, Kitty, and others who weren't involved in the massacre, the fog didn't incite a murderously focused rage in them as they had not one sip of the spiked punch. The brown potion relied on the presence of ethyl alcohol in the blood to formulate the personality change responsible for what happened on the 15th. Without the compound, all it could do was knock the host unconscious and hang them over upon their reawakening. Massacre participants or not, almost everyone who attended the dance were grounded upon their returns home for sneaking out. All their parents were worried sick and thought they'd never see their kids again, hoping that the groundings will teach a lesson in towing the line when their elders say no. The anger shared stemmed from how likely it was that law enforcement will mail them sternly written bills for their fruitless search parties. But for all the lives altered by one fog, the dance and subsequent massacre wound up being omens for what was to come three plus years later. And when Dean arrived at a Mefferter to show Mosley and Turnbull the aftermath, they were face to face with Milburn, Rebecca, Merlin, Rochelle, Maxwell, Ridley, Monroe, and Riley. Dean locked himself in his bedroom to allow the indigo and brown potions in his hands to craft an imaginative world where he was its ruler. He had no problem waiting for his turn in the ruler's seat to come as he knew that it was a matter of when and not if. By the time Gregorio Jr. took over Bromelia, he had way, way, way more than enough bottles to last him a lifetime so he started gifting them to others in the Yellow Cross Spear, people he could trust to use them for furthering the regime and nothing else. One of the entities that received the potions were the people who ran Camp Sunshine as their endgame involved the Brown Ones, but in the early hours of November 15, 1984, a warehouse in rural La Gran Lanuda came under attack and four out of every five people who were present or nearby at the time were either killed or captured. Disguised as yellow crossers, the red wasps looted the building of its potions, vowing to give their fascist enemies tastes of their own medicine. In Roimpus, Roy Jr. kept the six brown ones he long had even after Roy Sr. ordered him to properly destroy them or else. Despite being Habsburgo Sr.'s mate, Sajonia's lifetime as a potion maker ended in a way that cemented her own place in Bromelian history. The indigo and brown potions were two of the many kinds she made for him, herself and others, and as fate would have it, her creations and their impacts on the world would outlive her by well over a century. And that was The Dance in the Fog. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to the story I just gave. Share this show with everyone you know. Make sure they share it with everyone they know. Check out my website at 
www.rss.com slash podcasts slash the dystopian republic. Send me your respectful questions and constructive feedback at Raul Guerrero Jr. 95 at gmail.com. And lastly, support the show via my PayPal at paypal.com slash paypalme slash Raul Guerrero Jr. On that note, I'm Raul Guerrero, and come again for another gripping, thoughtful and sinister episode of The Dystopian Republic.